Over the past two and a half years, we've had a lot of things to go on in our country and our world that's been a great discouragement to the Lord's people. Uh, a lot of people said things will never be like they once were, and maybe they will, and maybe they won't. For two and a half years, we've had to deal with this COVID issue and vaccines and mandates and lockdowns and one thing or another. It's been a source of confusion. It's been a source of division in our country. And just a couple months ago, we have Russia invading Ukraine, uh, causing anxiety among a lot of, of people throughout the world, certainly here in America. And that's just to go along with all, everything else. If we didn't have any of that going on, there's always enough in the world going on anyway to pull God's people down and to discourage them. So over the last couple of years or more, I have been burdened in my mind and heart to try to encourage God's people the very best that I can. And I think many of our ministers have been doing the same. I can look at any of the 66 books of the Bible as I read any of those 66 books of the Bible and study it, I can find something in those books that would encourage me. So I need to be encouraged on a pretty regular basis, and I suspect you do too. But to me, the most encouraging book, perhaps in the entire Bible as a book, is the very last book. It's the book of Revelation. That book was written to encourage people specifically. That book was written by the Apostle John, he was, the, of course, human writer. God's the author of that book, like he is all 66 books. And the Apostle John himself was a prisoner on an island called Patmos. Patmos is an island about 60 miles southwest of Asia Minor. And the Lord's people at this particular time, this is about 95 A.D., the Lord's people at this time are going through some sufferings and persecutions because they are not willing to compromise on the truths of God. They're not willing to compromise and bow down and worship the emperor of Rome, the Caesar of Rome at that time, who was making a demand for people to do so. And so they had to encounter afflictions and sufferings in that day in various ways. Some were placed in prisons. Many lost their jobs. Uh, families were divided. Some were banished like the Apostle John was here. Some even lost their lives. So the Lord is going to use the Apostle John to write this book of Revelation that's going to be a source of encouragement. I suspect the book of Revelation is one of the least read books in the Bible. On the other hand, I suspect the book of Revelation is misread by more people than any book in the Bible. They don't understand the purpose of the book, don't know why the book was written, uh, they might say, well, I'm going to start reading the Bible. I think I'll start in Revelation. That's the very last book you should pick up, the very last one. You will never understand anything in the book of Revelation unless you understand many other things written in the other 65 books. But that's what people do. There uh, been many books written on the book of Revelation uh, to profit by it because people have a curiosity. And this book is written in symbolic language, which intrigues people, apparently. But it's written in symbolic language for a reason. Now, the Apostle John was used of God to give us three different types of literature. He used him to write the Gospel of John. He used him to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he used him to write the book of Revelation. These three books are all totally different. Much like Solomon. God used Solomon to write the Song of, so a song of Solomon. He used him to write the book of Proverbs. He used him to write the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll never find three books any different than, than these three books. 
Now, oftentimes in modern day authors, apart from the Bible, uh, like Zane Gray, for example, every time you picked up one of his novels, you know it was going to be a Western. It just changed the characters' names, changed the stories, etc., etc. But that's not true with the Bible. So the Apostle John gives us three different types of literature to read and study, and yet there are some connections between these three sets of books, you might say, or types of literature that God used him to write. But in the book of Revelation, it begins by saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now notice the difference between this and how Matthew starts out. Matthew 1.1 starts out like this, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And then you'll find him giving us a genealogy of the Son of God. So that's the generation of Jesus Christ, but this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation literally means to unveil. It means to make manifest. It's where we get our English word apocalypse. Unfortunately, when people think of that word today, they think of chaos. They think of destruction, which is totally different than what we find it meaning here. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Uh, this, this opening verse here, 1-1, in, in, in the verses that follow, in this first chapter of Revelation, is going to be very vital in setting forth a, a foundation, you might say, to read and understand the remaining book, uh, chapters in this book. It's the only book that I know of in the Bible that gives us an outline itself. Read in Revelation 1 and 19, you'll find where Apostle John was commanded to write the things which he saw, which is chapter 1. The things which are, which will be chapters 2 and 3, when he writes, sends this letter to the seven churches of Asia. And those things which are to be, or are to come, which will be recorded for us in chapters 4 through 22. So John himself outlines this book that he wrote. This book that he wrote here was going to be sent to seven churches, seven individual churches, seven real churches that were in Asia Minor. And we read about them in chapters 2 and 3. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul wrote letters to seven churches. He wrote seven different letters. In fact, he wrote nine letters. He wrote two letters to the church at Thessalonica and two churches to the church at Corinth. So he wrote nine letters to seven churches. We find the Apostle John writes one letter. It's going to be sent to all seven churches. So all seven churches are going to get the same letter, except in chapters 2 and 3 there is a specific personal address of the Lord to that particular church. And we might see something about that in the days ahead. Now, this letter was meant to be read publicly. Now, just think about it. We go back about 19 years or more, 1900 years or more ago, and we find that you're part of one of those seven churches. And all of a sudden, arrives a letter from the Apostle John. Now, 20, 30, 40, 50 letters didn't arrive, just one. Everybody didn't have a copy of this. Today, everybody should have a Bible in your possession. If you don't, we got one in the back, back of the pew there. Everybody has access to the Word of God. This letter was read openly, publicly to each congregation. And it was intended to encourage those congregations in the midst of great suffering and persecution. The letter that was read to them has been an encouragement to God's people in every century since then. See, suffering didn't end with those seven churches. 
The Lord's people have been victims. The Lord's people have experienced sufferings of one kind or another living in this world here, this anti-God and anti-Christian, ever since the Lord's church was set up and the Lord was here. The Lord encountered opposition and suffering and persecution himself while he was here upon the earth. In John chapter 1, it says he was in the world. The world was made by him, but the world knew him not. He came his own, his own received him not. He wasn't received. He wasn't known. He was despised and rejected of men. That's been a trait and a characteristic of his church, his true church he established during his earthly life and earthly ministry. So this is not an outdated book. It is not about a book of future events. When John wrote it, that was not relevant for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. People think the book of Revelation was written just people in the 21st century for some reason or another. And everybody wants to make... Uh, you know, Russia the bear. They want to make China the leopard, one thing and another. Well, there's been bears and leopards, you know, people and nations been represented for 1,900 years before they ever came on the scene. This book was a relevant book. This book is an open book in contrast to the book of Daniel. When you read Daniel, Daniel has 12 chapters in it. And there's a division after chapter 6. The first six chapters this way, the next six chapters over here. When you read the first six chapters, you're going to read about Daniel, you're going to read about the Hebrew children, you're going to read about them being in Babylonian captivity, you're going to read about the Hebrew children being in the fiery furnace, and you're going to read about Daniel being in the den of lions, etc. And it's pretty easy reading, exciting reading, some of my favorite portions of the Word of God. But when you get to chapter 7, it changes. When you start reading Daniel chapter 7 and read the next six chapters, it's like reading the book of Revelation in the Old Testament. He saw visions, he saw dreams. And these were so awesome in the sight of Daniel that you'll find where Daniel trembled and Daniel fell upon his knees and his hands. If you can just visualize, he's on his knees, his hands, his face is in his hands because of how powerful these visions and dreams were to him. We find the Apostle John over here in the latter part of the book, he also falls down. But he falls down also in chapter 1 at the feet of the risen Savior. See, these kind of revelations, this kind of information ought to strike such great awe in our minds and in our hearts that it humbles us and brings us right down to the dust of the earth to show us what we are by nature. Uh, I tell you, it bothers me when I see people with an irreverent attitude toward God. When people talk about the man upstairs, I, I would never address him as the man upstairs. As far as I'm concerned, that's irreverent. He's the almighty God. He spoke this world into existence. Uh, I appreciate the companionship of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I don't look at him as my buddy. I look at him as my dear friend. I look at him as my companion, the one that takes care of me all the time. Uh, I, don't try, I try not to use earthly language, earthly words, to talk about God, who's just spoke the world into existence and created me from the dust of this earth, who rules and reigns and rules over the entire universe. There needs to be a reverence that we have. That's why his name is called Reverend in Psalms 111, verse 9. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. Jesus said, when you pray, you pray in this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're not to be afraid of God. We're to draw near to God. But let us draw near with great respect and reverence in our minds and our hearts and in our souls. So it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the manifestation of Jesus Christ. This is what this book is all about.
Jesus means Savior. Christ means anointed. And Jesus is our Savior. And sometimes we find recorded in the book of Revelation the expression, our Savior, Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ, our Savior. But you know the word Savior is not even mentioned in Matthew and Mark? Did you know that? It's only mentioned three times in the, New, in the four Gospels, twice in Luke and once in John, the word Savior itself. But that's what the name Jesus means. It means salvation. It means Savior. This is the unveiling, the manifestation of Jesus Christ. And that gets me intrigued right there. If there's one person in this world I want to know more about, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Peter concluded his second letter Second Peter concludes on this, but growing grace in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To grow, you have to eat, you have to drink, you have to, you know, live a healthy life if you're going to grow from a natural perspective. And the same thing is true in, the, in, in our spiritual walk with God. If we're going to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth, then we need to be feeding upon the Word of God. We need to be faithful in the house of God, hearing the gospel of our Savior preached and proclaimed and trying to make application of it. Otherwise, we're not going to grow in grace. That's just all there is to it. So let's notice this first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants. That might seem interesting, uh, uh, strange, you might say, that God gave this revelation of, of Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ. But it wasn't because of his son, being his son. It was because he's the mediator between God and man. This is in his humanity. This is in his life he lived here upon the face of this earth in his role as the mediator between God and men. Remember what Paul told Timothy, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, plural, things which must shortly come to pass. The word shortly here does not mean time and duration. It means quickly. When these things start to uh, uh, begin to be, prophecy begin to be fulfilled, it's going to happen in a rapid manner, rapid way come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now this is how it's coming to John. When I begin to read this book here, I find that God communicated John in various ways. You'll find here it says he signified it to John by his angel. You've got to get to Revelation 17.1 before you read about where the angel spoke to John. But in Revelation chapter 1, we come in about verse 11, you're going to find where the Lord Jesus Christ spoke personally to John. You're going to find in uh, Revelation chapter 7 where one of the four elders spoke unto John. Remember there's four, four beasts and four and twenty elders comes to our attention in Revelation 4. Well, one of those elders is going to speak to John. And then later on we're going to find where there was a voice that came out of heaven that spoke to John. So God spoke to John in different ways, but no matter how he spoke to John, it was all by divine inspiration. It was God communicating to John by an elder, by a voice, by himself, by an angel. And so it's coming to John, and notice the word signify, because the word signify means sign. This is letting us know this book is going to be a book filled with symbols. This word that's uh, translated signified, is translated sign, is translated wonder, and it's translated miracles in other places in the book of Revelation. Signs, wonders, and miracles were done in the land of Egypt. Signs, wonders, and miracles were done in the Old Testament in various times and places. And signs, wonders, and miracles was done by the Lord Jesus Christ in his own earthly ministry. That's how he, uh, uh, you know, one of the ways that he proved that he was who he said he was. If you look in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, 
In verse 22, he tells those he's preaching to that the Lord Jesus Christ was approved of God by signs, wonders, and miracles. Remember when the Lord spoke to the Jews, said, If you believe me not for my word's sake, words, believe me for the work's sake. And that's what, the, uh, that's what uh, in John chapter 3, uh, when we find Nicodemus coming to the Lord, what does Nicodemus say to the Lord? He says to the Lord, We know that thou art a, uh, we know that thou art, uh, a teacher come from God, because no man could do the things thou doest except God be with him. When he opened the eyes of the blind, when he opened up the ears of the deaf, when he gave strength to, the, to those that uh, couldn't walk, to the lame, when he cleansed the leper, he raised the dead, all these were signs, wonders, and miracles, and that showed God's approval of him as his beloved son. If they didn't believe his words, they should have believed his works. Nicodemus did. That's what intrigued Nicodemus and brought him to the Lord that night, uh, you might say in secrecy, but he came to the Lord to find out more about this man. So this book's going to be a book of symbolic language. Somebody said, well, Brother Lawrence, why in the world did the Lord have this book written in symbolic language and like all the other epistles? Well, he didn't tell me why he did it, <laughs> number one. But number two, I think it's written in spiritual code for a reason. Think about the spiritual code. To understand Revelation, this world will never understand it. If the Roman soldiers at that time who controlled you know, their empire was in control. If they intercepted the book of Revelation and tried to use it against the Christians that day, they'd just be baffled by it. They wouldn't have the slightest understanding of anything in this book. It would mean nothing unto them. But if John had specifically called the Caesar by name, that would have been different. So that's one reason. Also, symbolic language, usually over time, does not lose its value. It doesn't get weaker over a period of time. As you read this book here, you're going to find sometimes the symbolic language in it is explained to us. For example, at the end of chapter 1, you will have read about seven stars and seven golden candlesticks. But the last verse of chapter 1 tells us plainly that the seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches of Asia. So we don't have to guess about that, right? And we also... Uh, find where he says the seven stars are the seven messengers to the seven churches, and they're in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they were the local pastors. Those are the ministers that were in the hand of Christ, the standpoint of their calling, and also in the standpoint of being placed in the right place in his kingdom. So we're told plainly that. Then there's other language in the book of Revelation that we cannot understand unless we trace it back to the Old Testament. For example, over here in the and I think it's eight, chapter 18 in the book of Revelation, he brings Babylon to our attention. Well, where's the first time I read about Babylon? It's over here in Genesis chapter 11. Remember when they tried to build a tower all the way to heaven? And that displeased God. And God came down and confused their language. And that word means confusion. So then you trace it through the Bible, you see nothing good about Babylon. Nothing. And over here, we're told that Babylon has fallen, has fallen, has fallen. There's a hymn we sing from time to time that goes that way. Babylon has fallen. And it's in contrast to the Lord's bride. See, the book of Revelation gives us a tale of two cities. You've got the celestial city, the city of the Lord Jesus Christ, heaven itself. And then you've got Babylon down here and the great contrast between the two. You'll find the word manna. Well, that should be familiar to us. We go back and study Israel's travels in the wilderness, how God fed them with manna. 
That ought to be familiar to us. Also, in uh, Revelation 2, 7, the church at Ephesus, he speaks about those that overcome. He'll give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Where's the first time I read about the tree of life? It's back in Genesis. It's back over there when the Lord told Adam of all the trees of the Garden of Eden, he could eat of all of them except one, that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it's set up in contrast to the tree of life. There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It ends over here in Revelation 22 when he says, Blessed are those who do my commandments, they may have right to the tree of life. So I need to go back and study something about the tree of life, something about the manna, something about Babylon, if I'm going to understand some of the things here in the book of Revelation. But there's some things also in Revelation there's no New Old Testament reference to. You look in the second chapter again to the next church, you'll find a, a, a white stone comes to our attention. I cannot find a white stone in the Old Testament. So I've got to go outside of the Bible and study a little bit about that. I've got to go outside the Bible and study something about the history and the culture and some of the practices of nations in that day to come up with an explanation about the white stone. And that's not what I'm going to preach on this morning, but I have done that. So signs, some of the signs are plainly explained to us. Others are explained if we will then do a little digging. If we will then do a little study and go back to the Old Testament. And then there's some we're going to have to study in a little different way to come up with that. But this Bible was written, again, I want to reemphasize, to encourage God's children in that day. And I don't know of a book in the Bible that encourages me any more today than this last book of the Bible. It's the capstone. You might say, of all the writings of the Bible, 66 books, it's the capstone. It's written by the Apostle John, who had not seen the Lord Jesus Christ for about 60 years. He saw him before he ever ascended into heaven. He heard him speak, saw him, saw his work, saw his miracles, etc. About 60 years passes, the apostle John's on this island, and all of a sudden the Lord's going to appear to him in a glorified state, and he's going to speak to him, and I'm getting ahead of myself. All right? So we'll back up here just a little bit. He says, Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. And John is giving testimony of things that he's seen. Then notice verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Here's a blessing. The word blessed is a beatitude. There are seven of them in this book. Most people just think about the beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount when the Lord Jesus Christ began his discourse to his disciples. And that's beautiful language, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after Christ, for they shall be filled, etc. Blessed are those that are pure in heart, for they shall see God. What wonderful blessings these are, these beatitudes. But there's other beatitudes in the Bible, and there's seven of them here in Revelation. And if you want to find them, you're going to have to read them. You're going to have to get a book open, and you're going to have to read it if you're going to find them. There are seven of them. I just gave you the first one. In fact, I've already given you the last one over here in Revelation 22, but there's five right in between. Blessed is he that readeth. That tells me if you don't read, you miss the blessing. It's kind of like uh, what we read in the first chapter of James. In James chapter 1, about verse 23... He speaks about those who hear the word and do it, and those who hear the word and do it not. He said, I liken that man who heareth my words and doeth not to a man that looketh into the glass 
If then, when he turns away, he forgets what manner of man that he was. But the blessing comes on the man who looks, who re- hears the word, does the word, and he doesn't forget what manner of man he is because he applies himself to the word and tries to make changes in his life. The scriptures and the gospel call upon us to make changes in the way we think, changes in what we do, changes in how, how we live our life, that we might live more and more like Christ as time goes on. It calls upon us to do that. If somebody says, I've been studying the Bible for years and I've never changed, I'm the same, I've said, well, you just hadn't grown, my friends. Uh, you missed the whole point. The whole point is the growing grace and knowledge of the truth to make changes in your life. Blessed is the man who read the sayings of this book and keep the sayings of this book. Not only to read it, but also to keep it. When I think about what James says, you know, he says, blessed is the man that not only hears the word, but also does it. Because, and the man who hears and doesn't do it is like the man... Uh, again, looking into the glass and forgetting what manner of man he was. In other words, uh, it's, to me, it's like stepping on scales. Some people want to get the results quick. <laughs> they don't like what they see. And if you're like me, I've learned little ways to adjust those scales. I have noticed if I actually get toward the front, I weigh less than I do if I'm right in the middle. So where do you think I step? And when I go to the doctor's office, they, they always, they, they know me there. And when I go there, I always have to weigh, you know, I always have to weigh. So out comes the keys, out comes the cell phone, off comes the watch, comb out, pin out, change out, billfold out, shots, uh, shoes off. All that comes off when I get on them scales. And I could have told them ahead of time what I weighed. It's just a waste of time. But anyway, that's the way people do with the Word of God a lot of times. They look into it and they think, uh, I don't know, I don't think I'm as bad as it says I am right there. <laughs> Blessed is the man that readeth the things that's written therein. Now when you look at John's other writings, you'll find where he emphasizes things that he's written. 1 John 1, 4. These things have I written unto you that your joy may be full. That tells me for your joy to be full, as John is writing about here, you're going to have to read what he wrote, right? You have to read what he wrote if your joy is going to be full. That's why he wrote it to you. And you look in the Gospel of John, the last words, the last two verses of John chapter 20. You'll find where John says, And many other things did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe on the Son of God and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He performed things that's not written in John's Gospel. There are things Jesus did that's not recorded in the four Gospels. So that tells me if it's recorded here, it must be of utmost significance. And then the last verse of John chapter 21, as John ends his Gospel message, in the Gospel of John, he says... And many other things Jesus did, again, which are not written, for all the things that Jesus did, had they been written, this world could not hold the books of the things that could be written about Christ. So John wrote these things for people actually to read them. You know, it'd be like me writing a wonderful, beautiful, the love letter of all love letters to Karen. (laughs) And I write it out, and I read it, and I say, boy, this is going to be great. And I put it in the envelope, and I put it in my pocket, and I never give it to her. Is that going to benefit her? Or let's say I actually give it to her. And I said, here. And she takes it. 
And these words are outstanding. I mean, these are fantastic words. These are words beyond human comprehension. It tells me what a great mountain I'd climb for, what a wide sea I'd swim for. <laughs> all of those things, how much I live with all of my heart, soul, and mind. And she just lays it aside and never reads it. That going to help her? God used over 40 people over a period of 1,600 years to write this book right here and gave it to us. What good is it if we don't open it up and read it? Blesses a man that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And then beginning in chapter 4, it says, John to the seven churches. This is where this letter is going to go. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Interesting language here. This is coming from him that is, and was, and is to come. See, there's no really past, present, future with God. God is not bound by time. We are. We're creatures in time. And we have time constraints in one thing and another. But that's not true with God. But what he's telling you right here is, throughout all eternity, God is the same. It's like Hebrews 13, 8, concerning Jesus Christ. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's never been a time when Jesus was different here than he was here or here than he was there. And I do like to emphasize and remind you again when he says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't say yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Because forever takes care of all the tomorrows. And so the purpose of God, the good pleasure of God, the will of God, that's all been the same, my friends. He says, who is, who was, and who is to come. And if you come down to the 8th verse, he adds this expression, the Lord God Almighty. He says, I'm Alpha and Omega. In fact, I want to just, uh, I want to kind of skip to verse 8 just for a moment, and then we'll back back up, Lord willing. But notice here in verse 8, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. That expression, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty, is recorded three times in this book. He says, I'm Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega is the first and last uh, uh, letters of the Greek alphabet. And when he says that, he's just letting you know he's everything. He's thorough. He's complete. He's perfect. He's everything from one end to the other. He's Alpha. He's Omega. He's the beginning and he's the end. And you'll find that, I think, four times in the book of Revelation. First chapter and the last chapter. The beginning and the end. Aren't you thankful for that? He was the Alpha in creation, wasn't he? How's the Bible start off? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He's the beginning of creation. He spoke creation. He is the creator that brought everything into existence. But there's coming an end to this creation. And we read about this in Hebrews chapter 1. He, he speaks about it like a woman would uh, uh, fold up, um, you know, the quilts and the blankets and stuff and put them away. No, no further need for any of that. The garments... And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, he speaks how the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. 
It says, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat in the earth and all the works therein shall be burned up. He's not only the alpha, he's the omega. This world can do a lot of damage to itself, but I'm telling you, God has reserved the right and he will take care of bringing all this to an end at his own time. He's the alpha and the omega. What about your faith? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the alpha and the omega of our faith. See, faith is the gift of God. If you look in Romans 12, 3, you'll find where Paul speaks about how God has given to every man the measure of faith. There is the measure, not a measure, but the measure of faith is given to every man that is every object of God's love. When he borns him with the Spirit of God, the measure of faith is given unto him. God gave you the same faith he gave me, gave me the same faith he gave you. I didn't get a bigger measure or a lesser measure. We all got the same measure. The difference is how we use it. I think we all have the same, same total, total amount of muscles, right? But some people use those muscles more than other people, and so therefore some people's muscles are bigger and stronger than other people's are because they make better use of it. So some people are strong in faith, stronger than others because they use the faith that God has given unto them. That faith came as the gift of God. Ephesians 2 and 8. For the grace that you say through faith that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You don't inherit faith from your parents. You don't get faith in natural generation. There is no faith in the natural man. That faith is planted within your heart and soul when you're born of the Spirit of God, giving you the ability to love God, trust God, pray to God, lean upon God, look unto God. That all comes from the faith God gave you when He born you of the Spirit. He's the author of that. There's coming a day when I will not need that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you have the chapter on charity. And you have faith, hope, and charity is the greatest. This is charity because faith and hope are for our benefit now. When I get to heaven, I, don't need, I won't need hope anymore. <laughs> you know, hope is the anchor of the soul, both sure and stay at fast. It anchors me down the storms of life. I'm not looking for any storms in heaven. Uh, that's one of the things about heaven I'm looking forward to. No more storms. <laughs> no more storms. No more problems. No more sorrows. No more heartaches. No more sad farewells. No more cemeteries. No more funeral services. No more court cases. No more hospitals. No more doctors. That is practicing doctors. There'll be a few doctors there. <laughs> There'll be a few lawyers there. <laughs> They just won't be practicing law when they get there, okay? <laughs> so that's what I'm looking for, right? That's what I'm looking for. He's the Alpha and He's the Omega. I won't need faith and hope there, but I tell you what, we'll still be going in there, and charity be going in there, and charity is love. You know, uh, most of the modern translations don't use the word charity in 1 Corinthians 13. They just put the word love. You know, what's the big deal, Brother Lawrence? Isn't charity love? It sure is. But charity is a special type of love. When you don't put the word charity in there, you miss a, a great impact of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Brother Terry Brown, he was telling me the other day, you never know what Brother Terry's going to tell you, but it's always interesting. He said, Brother Lawrence, he said, I heard this man the other day, and he says, John the Baptist come along, and says he uh, wasn't, wor wasn't worthy to loosen the, loosen the shoe lashes of the sandals of Jesus. He said, the Bible don't say sandals. It says shoes, KJV. 
I said, you're right, Brother Terry. That's K-H-A-V. You don't say sandals. It says shoes. It tells what kind. He says shoes there. The word charity is a proper translation, and it belongs in 1 Corinthians 13. He's the Alpha and the Omega of our faith, Alpha and Omega of our creation. He's the Alpha and Omega of our salvation. Christ is presented in this book, the book of Revelation, as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, from the beginning of time. The Lord purposed to send forth His Son in this world, that He might die on Calvary, that he put away our sins as far as the east is from the west, and the application of that blood was being applied from the first hour promised back in the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, to Adam and Eve, and it's been that way ever since. And Jesus hung upon that cross in John 19, 30. What did he say? He says, it is finished. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation. He's the author of it. He's the finisher of it. And we can spend a lot more time on that. Well, let's back up, back up here to verse, uh, verse 4 again. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And you know, the thing about this, I, I got to think about this week. When you speak about God being is and was and is to come, it's the same, same in every, every part here, right? But that's not true with us. We have a past, we have a present, and we have a future, don't we? Uh, but things change with us. We're not the same today as we were yesterday, and we won't be the same tomorrow as we are today. And you know, when it talks about the present, I'm telling you, as I'm speaking right here, the future is becoming the present instantaneously, is it not? I have a past, I have a present. The present doesn't last long. The future quickly becomes my present. But I'm not the same today as I was many years ago. People don't tell me today, like they used to, you look just the same as you did 20 years ago. I don't know why they don't say that anymore, uh, you know, but they don't. I can't figure it out. I guess if I looked at a picture of myself 20 years ago, I might figure it out. I think I had more of hair, and it was a little darker, right? Maybe a less wrinkle or two along the way. But anyway... He's the same. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. He is and was and is to come. He's always the same. His purpose is the same. His attributes are the same. Always the same. Then he speaks about seven spirits, which are written, um, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now listen, people read that and they say, well, I just thought there was one spirit. Well, that's right. That is all it is, one spirit. But there were seven churches and the, seven, and, that, and the Spirit of God can manifest itself where He can be present in seven different locations at the same time. You know that? This morning, I trust you did, I did, I prayed before I got here, Lord, be with us this day, being our midst, bless us with your divine presence. And there's primitive Baptist ministers all across this country that prayed the same prayer this morning. Did you know God can answer the prayer of every single one of those elders and those congregations? He can be with every single one of them at the very same time, yet there's just one Lord. And there's just one Holy Spirit. And if the Lord blesses us with His Holy Spirit here, that does not mean His Holy Spirit is not present with all those other congregations I just mentioned. 
There were seven churches here, and the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of Godhead, can manifest himself in each one of those seven churches at the same time. It's not seven spirits. That seven is the word of completion and perfection. It shows the completion and perfection of the work of the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Notice these three things about the Lord, he says here. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Every time Jesus spoke, he was witnessing here on this earth. When Jesus spoke, he was testifying upon the face of this earth. He was giving witness about the Father in heaven and the purpose of the Father and the grace of the Father and the love of the Father and the mercy of the Father. He's giving testimony of the will of the Father, the good pleasure of the Father when he spoke. And he gave testimony about his own life, him being equal with the Father. Remember in John chapter 10, when Jesus said, I know my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no man can pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. For I and the Father are one. He testified, the Father and I are one. We are equal. He gave testimony concerning his own will, being the same as the will of the Father. John 6, 37 through 39. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will. All yet given me, I should lose nothing, but raise up again at the last day. Aren't you thankful for that testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ? He was faithful to declare he came from heaven. He was faithful to declare that his will was the will of the Father. He was faithful to declare that all the Father had given him, he wouldn't lose a single one, but he'd raise them up all again at the last day. Thank God for the testimony of the faithful witness. A faithful witness is a true witness. And Christ is referred to later on as a true and faithful witness in this book. So he says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead. That just simply means he's the first one to raise, be raised from the dead by his own power, never to die again. Before Christ was raised from the dead, I can give you at least five different people that was raised from the dead. But they were not raised by their own power. And they were not raised to immortal life. They all lived a while longer and died again. The Lord Jesus Christ did not. Later in this book, he's going to tell us, later in this chapter, I'm he that liveth, was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Christ's resurrection was supreme. He is the resurrection and the life. Christ was raised from the dead by his own power, and the Lord Jesus Christ has not and never will die again. He's the first begotten from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23, we find where Paul says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ the firstfruits after those that are his at his coming. See, he is the first uh, begotten of the dead. He's the first fruits of the dead. And in Romans 8 and 29, he's spoken of as the first begotten of the Father. First begotten, firstborn, I mean. First begotten, firstborn, and first fruits. Jesus is all of those. And then he says, he is the prince of the kings of the earth. Now this earth has had its kings without number. But the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. 
You know, when Satan offered Jesus Christ, if he would bow down and worship him, all the kingdoms of this world, well, all those kingdoms had kings. He said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, and all these kingdoms have kings. They belong to you. They already belong to him. <laughs> they all already belong to him. Jesus Christ is the reigning supreme Lord of lords and King of kings upon all the kingdoms and kings of this earth here. And that's the one. He's the faithful witness, the first begotten from the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. And then I want to finish up this morning with this, these, this last thing it said about, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By the way, there's ten amens in the book of Revelation. When you, you'll have to read it to find them. There's 10 of them. You know what the word amen means? It means you're in total agreement. It means so be it. That's right. And, uh, you know, it's not kind of, kind of like I was uh, preaching one time in Virginia, me and this other good brother. And I went first, and the Lord blessed, I thought, very abundantly and, and everything. And there was this brother sitting on the front pew. And I mean, at the right time, all the way through the discourse, he said, amen, amen. He was amening right along. I, boy, I tell you, that's just fuel to the fire for a gospel preacher. Them amens are. And then I, I sat down, and the next preacher got up, and he says, you know, he said, the Lord is blessed this so abundant, blessed Brother Lawrence so amazingly here this morning. I think the best thing to do, just let's just shut down the meeting right here. And the brother said, Amen. <laughs> He kind of backed up and said, well, uh, <clears throat> and then he went on and preached. <laughs> the brother meant well. He was in the spirit. <laughs> it says, who has loved us? You ever really stop and think a little bit what that really means? Who has loved us? Who are we? Who, who am I that God would love me? Ephesians 2 and 4 says, but, his, but God, in His great grace, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even we were dead in trespasses and in sins. That means we were unlovable. That means God looked down and loved an unlovable person. He looked down and, and, and loved me, unlovable. He loved you that was unlovable. He loved the people out of every nation, kindred and tongue and people on this earth that by nature were unlovable. They said in their hearts there is no God. They said in their minds uh, uh, they were in me against God. And the wicked through the private countenance would not seek after God. These are people who would not seek. They would not believe. They didn't even believe he was God. And God loved them anyway. Who hath loved us? I like the us here. The little word us. You ever pay attention to it? Look in Ephesians chapter 1 just for a moment with me. According as he has chosen us before the foundation of the world, we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his own will. Praise to the glory of his grace, wherein he made us, made us accepted in the beloved. The us in Ephesians 1 is the same us right here. The same us that Jesus Christ loved is the same us in Ephesians 1, 4, 5, and 6. There's four us's. <laughs> is that proper to say that? I'm going to say it anyway. There's four us's over here in Romans chapter 8. <laughs> when you preach, you get to make up your own words. 
There's four S's. <laughs> in Romans chapter 8, after Paul lays it out in verses 29 and 30, over whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And when he predestinated them, he also called them. When he called them, he also justified them. When he justified them, he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, <laughs> who can be against us? I like the us, don't you? I like the us's in God's word. <laughs> who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trials and tribulations, nakedness, pearls and swords? No, my friends, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. He says, not even life or death or height or death or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I like the word us real good in God's word. Who hath loved us and washed us in his own blood. You know what that means? That means you were really unclean. That means you were really dirty. That means you were really filthy. And I'm not talking about the dirt and the filth of the flesh here on the outward side. I'm talking about the uncleanness and the filth and the dirty of the inward man. Of my mind and my heart. But the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all of my sins. He loved me and he's washed me whiter than snow. And he's made me a king and a priest here in this world. Made me a king. How, how am I a king this morning? Because the Lord of Lords and King of Kings dwells right here. He abides in my heart. He abides in my soul, giving me his power to overcome my nature in this world and Satan's attacks. He's made me a priest unto God. A priest is someone who offers things. A prophet represented God to the people, but the priest represented the people to God. And this morning... You are practicing your priesthood. When you came here and sat down and worshiped together, you practiced your priesthood. Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your body a living sacrifice. Sacrifice, holy acceptance of God, which is your reasonable service. And then when you begin to sing the hymns of praise, you are offering things up to God, were you not? The fruit of our lips, even praise to our God that God is well pleased with. And to communicate, forget not, because with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And the word communicate means to share. It means to uh, give and to share. And so we come here this morning and make the sacrifice of our contributions in the plate. And make our contributions of singing praise and adoration to the Heavenly Father. And make that sacrifice of sitting in the pew and hearing a man try to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to read his word, proclaim his word, declare his word, and preach his word to the satisfaction, my friends, of, of the hearts and minds of God's people to encourage them and lift them up and build them up in the most holy faith and above all things, praise and honor and adore the matchless Christ that we have in heaven. We may pick this up next time, but anyway, we got through the first eight verses here. Thank you so much for your prayers and your attention and your support as always. And we'd like to select a hymn. Brother Junior, what do you got? Hymn number 202 has been selected as we sing this hymn. We will give an opportunity to anyone that would like to unite with the church.